ago, in the first part of chapter 13, we heard a call for the endurance and faith of the saints in light of the beast that was rising up from the water. He will be granted power and authority by the dragon to destroy the church and deceive the unbelieving. In light of this, we were called to be vigilant. Our lives in this world as the church will become increasingly difficult. And the Bible is trying to tell us, listen, do not be taken off guard by these things. And he's speaking to the church in all generations at all times. The first beast in chapter 13 symbolizes the state, all the earthly powers and authorities. They're all the, the, the influences behind them are wicked. They seek to destroy and to deceive tonight. in the second part of chapter 13, a second beast rises this time out of the earth. So verses 11 through 18 concern the same situation as verses 1 through 8, but from a completely different perspective, and that is that of the state's ally, the first beast's ally. The first beast uttered all kinds of blasphemies and haughty words. Its anti-Christ, anti-God objective in the world is clear. The second beast makes the first beast's claims plausible and persuasive And likable. That's the second beast's role in the last days. He will destroy the church first through deceit. So in light of the second beast's authority as a false prophet to deceive, we are also called to wisdom in the last days. So let me pray and we'll read this together. Father, we are more dependent on you. I am more dependent on you than we can imagine. So, Lord, would you do a work in this place tonight, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help me preach. Help me preach accurately. Help my tone, my content be pleasing to you, Father, and enable every single one of us to hear, even if all we can hear is that these things are really important. Father, we ask and pray for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Reveal him to us in this text. Amen. Let me read verses 11 through 18 of chapter 13. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence or on its behalf and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth In front of people, what would that look like in today's world? And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So the second beast is also rising out of something. Which reminds us again, as so often happens in Revelation, of the beasts in Daniel 7. Especially Daniel 7, 17. These great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. 
the prophet said, this beast is an obvious parody of the resurrected lamb in chapter 5, verse 6. It's also a lamb that has horns. It has two instead of seven, like the lamb did. But it mimics in its two horns. Where have we seen two before? It's mimicking the two witnesses, the two lampstands, and the two olive trees of chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. This beast is the witness of the first beast. Just as the church is the witness of Jesus Christ. It also speaks like a dragon in verse 1. Meaning, we know by now, it speaks with the full authority of the devil. Just like the first beast did. Crucial to understanding the role of the second beast is that he is later called the false prophet. In 1613, 1920, and chapter 20, verse 10. That means his role is primarily a religious one. That will be his playground. A true prophet does what? Leads people to worship God, while the false prophet will lead people to worship the state, the world. And by extension, of course, the devil. We know from the seven letters, from chapter 2 in particular, that uh, false prophets had already were already infiltrating the church in Asia Minor in John's day, which is precisely what Jesus prophesied would be happening in the last days in all of them. In Matthew, Paul warned of it in Acts chapter 20 for the church in Ephesus that appears in the seven letters. Beloved, that means that this beast is manifested in various ways within the church. In the Old Testament, false prophets always ministered within the covenant community of Israel. When Scripture speaks of wolves in sheep's clothing, we know that phrase. The implication is that there are traitors inside the church that look like they're part of the church, but they're not. They're agents of the evil one. But they speak with the authority of the dragon, that alluring voice that in chapter 12, verse 9, reminds us, swayed Adam and Eve. This deception is going to affect, has affected, will affect, is affecting the covenant community of the church. Remember that the first beast speaks blatant blasphemies and obscenities against God. It's clear where his allegiances lie. There's no question. But the second beast schemes to make that beast's claims sound, again, plausible, persuasive. False teachers within the church will be known in part by encouraging compromise with the state's idolatrous institutions, as they always have. There is an almost cultish element to the power of the state in the world for people. There are people that literally worship in the same way you and I would worship Christ, with the same kind of devotion or sentiment, world leaders and uh, the, the, the strange, weird obsession with Zelensky in the Ukraine. I mean, they, they did a photo shoot of him, like modeling photo shoot. Their country is in the middle of a war. I'll take things Theodore Roosevelt would never have done for 500, Alex. That, that's, nobody does that. Who takes a photo shoot? In the middle of a war that is, women were, were, were pining over him. He was supposedly this very, you know, handsome, charismatic leader. There, there's a spiritual thing happening here. Happening all the time. The second beast is scheming to make the authority of the first beast and what he's trying to accomplish in the world plausible. And it's so built into the DNA of the world that we often don't realize that that's what's happening around us. That's what we're a part of. That's the environment in which we live. There are images, songs, right? The, the iconography of 
these institutions, the state, people place their hope in certain leaders, right? And in certain parts of the world still, the picture of a leader is revered, honored. Things are draped on it. People place their hope in leaders, often the same way we place our hope in Christ. And listen, that's the ongoing work of the beast that rises in chapter 13 out of the earth. That's his job. Make anything worshipable, worshipable except Christ. That's what he's doing. These last few years have revealed a concerning tendency on the part of the church to just believe whatever the state tells us. Whatever the government, whatever the media tells us, we believe it, we buy it, we don't question it. And if you'll notice, who is demonized? Those that do question it. Right? The, the difference between truth and a conspiracy theory is about two weeks. Right? I mean, that's the normal way of things right now. Remember this. Question what you are being told. Question it. There are forces at work to deceive you and to destroy you. Question all of them. All of them. Especially the ones telling you you shouldn't question. I've, I've had enough of being told to believe the science from people that can't biologically define what a woman is. So maybe try something else. In verse 12, the second beast exercises the authority of the first beast. He uses it, it says, to make the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. That's his plan, whose mortal wound was healed. And so verse 13 here picks up on the counterfeit resurrection, so to speak, that we saw of the first beast in verses 1 through 10. It performs great signs. Again, it's a satanic counterfeit to Moses who performs signs in Exodus. He even makes fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. A satanic counterfeit also of the true prophet Elijah. And these allusions to Moses and Elijah are not accidental. He's not grabbing them out of thin air. Moses and Elijah were also alluded to back in chapter 11 verses 3 through 12. In the ministry of the two witnesses who represent the ministry of the church in the last days, which are all the days between the ascension of Jesus and his return. Our Lord Jesus himself prophesied of these very days in Matthew 24, 24, saying that false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. The only reason the elect don't believe the deception is because God has sealed them so that they don't. If he took his hand off of us for a minute, beloved, we would believe the lies. We must know that's how fragile we are without Christ. This calls for wisdom. We have got to recognize this. These signs and wonders are going to be magnificent, beloved. They'll be magnificent. We need wisdom. Other texts in Matthew tell us this. Second Thessalonians, Second Peter warns us also. Beloved, this is a call for wisdom. The, the powers that be, especially the powers behind the state. The, the, the economy in China isn't doing that great either. It's, it's, there's, there's, there are people in the world with deeper pockets than the Chinese government or the American government. That's just the way it is. Always has been. The powers that be are concocting all kinds of visual wonders that will sway us if we're not ready, sway us away from the Lord, make them believe all kinds of things through their power to produce such amazing wonders. What technology can accomplish right now is terrifying. 
terrifying. They can just put your face on another person's body and get you on video doing whatever they want to accuse you of. Right? I mean, in, in the midst of this, cameras amazingly break down when potential whistleblowers commit suicide in their jail cells. Right? It's, it's, it's amazing how much and how often we are straight lied to, and this is where we get all our information. Who knows what they're going to do? In the last, what, two years, have you heard the renewed interest in UFOs? Right? I mean, it sounds like to my own church that I have a foil hat on, doesn't it? Right? That, that's how much we've... Do you, beloved, do you know what that would do to unite the world for one cause if we thought there was like an attack from another planet and now all of a sudden the Navy just can't keep their videos confidential anymore? Come on, man. Come on. No, I don't believe in aliens, but I believe in Satan. And I believe in demons, and I believe they hate Jesus and would love nothing more than to destroy the world and destroy the church. And he will use whatever tactic he can. We had better be ready to recognize lies, beloved, in our day. Now, today, tonight, we must be ready. Don't be fooled. Things are going to happen in this world and be revealed and reported that look real and are not true. How are we going to discern? Beloved, lean into Christ. Trust what He's given you in the Word and don't waver from it. And don't speculate with it, which is so dangerous because then you won't really know what you're looking at. We have to stop doing this or we're going to be fooled. Remember this, that the second beast is a counterfeit of the church. It's going to operate in the world the same way and especially a counterfeit of the spirit who empowers and dwells within the church. The beast is nothing against the Holy Spirit that empowers us, but he is everything against the world that is the realm of Satan on God's leash. They mimic what Christ is doing in the world through the gospel. They're they're spreading their agenda, their lowercase g gospel, the exact same way, and they have spiritual authority behind it to back it up and bolster it and we aren't the only ones who pray beloved satan's literal servants meaning people that that say outright i worship satan i serve him i follow him they pray they pray to their god they're after our minds beloved that's what they're doing to to sway us long before it gets to killing us at the guillotine or something long before we get to that point Through their ability to show us things and tell us things that will shake our very foundations. Make us question everything. What what the state has the ability to concoct and carry out literally could change the entire shape of the world. And what? how do they talk to us? The Great Reset. The New World Order. Right? These aren't my words. They're their words. And now they don't even hide them anymore. Right? The church has to be aware of these things. Klaus Schwab and... People that talk like this, and I probably just tipped off the CIA through my microphone that I'm talking about. Right? I, I will, you know that, I know that a lot of what we hear as I'm going through Revelation is new to a lot of us, and, and it's very different, and maybe it's a little unsettling because maybe we've, we've been familiar with one way our whole lives, you know, and, and so this is different, and we can always agree to disagree on these things, beloved. I do stand behind that, but I want you, if you can, for a moment, to hear me out. All right. 
it is concerning certain beliefs or views we might have of the end times. Okay? If Satan has deceived us into thinking, think about this for a minute, that we won't be here to see most of these things. And then they happen and we're still here. We are not in the position the Scripture calls us to, to discern what is false to the extent that we need to be. If if we're expecting to just get transported out and miss all of this as though this was written to people thousands of years after its audience, beloved, are we going to be able to discern? Are we going to be able to recognize lies as what they are? Beliefs have consequences, right? Our convictions have consequences. We want to be protected from the deception. Jesus has you. He has you. You are going to be fine. Don't believe the lies of the beast. You don't want to be primed to think, well, this can't be that, the great deception, and I can't follow it because I wouldn't be here for that. Beloved, at least have the wherewithal to say, this is how I think it will go, but just in case, I'm going to stay embedded in Christ and in the Scripture, and I'm going to keep trying to understand what He's told me. You know, that, that's how, that's how, listen, this is just for your good. It's for, it's for your good. It will help you. It will help your family. Everything. Just, beloved, not everything is a lie, but everything that isn't Christ comes from lies. So just be discerning. Be discerning. Do not underestimate the ability of the beast to deceive us with lies that are deceptive because they look like they're truth. And they look like they're real. In fact, that is how he works. If if the second beast showed you the first beast and said, worship him, you'd be terrified and wouldn't want to worship him. If if, If wolves in sheep's clothing didn't wear sheep's clothing, we would kick them out of the church. We'd run from them. But that's not, Satan is not stupid. He's wiser than everybody in this room. But Christ makes him look like a clown, just so we're clear. Notice how much the false prophet's credentials in the text are modeled as a direct counterfeit to true apostles of Christ. He's a successor to his master in both ministry and in authority. He attempts to persuade others to worship his master based on his resurrection. And he performs miraculous signs as concrete manifestations of his master's authority. It looks the same. Daniel 11 warns us in 30 to 39 that a deceiver will appear in the latter days that will infiltrate the, infiltrate the covenant community and turn people away from God. That's happening now all around us. All around us. Wisdom, beloved. Discernment. Again, beware of Christian leaders and teachers who begin to take their primary cues from the culture What does the culture value? What does the culture think is important? We have to be aligned with that or they won't listen to our witness, right? Instead of just getting our cues from the Word. The last 20 years or so in evangelicalism, 25 have been about breaking the missional code in your community and and exegeting your community. And Are these things necessarily bad? No. The question is, At what point have we stopped trusting the power of the simple gospel 
for salvation and have begun to, to let it be added to or affected by the ingenuity we can work up in our communities and our ability to recognize and go along with the culture and look cool and then pull the rug out from everybody and say, by the way, you have to be forgiven of your sins. You know, it's just, it's, it's all very dangerous. Such leaders will corrupt the church spiritually by encouraging it to live by the norms of the times and have faith in something that actually is in opposition to the reign of God and in opposition to the sufficiency of the gospel as Christ gave it. We have, we need to know our culture. We need to know where we are and who the people are. That's what missionary, that's what pioneer missionaries do. There's nothing wrong with that. And we need to love the people in our culture, even the ones we don't want to. But it cannot dictate to us the content of what we proclaim. The culture cannot be allowed to do that. Nor can it be allowed to convince us that certain parts of Scripture maybe aren't true anymore. Maybe they're not applicable to our day. My wife sent me a video this morning that was of a church that did an Easter play called The Lion King of the Tribe of Judah. And it was an Easter play where everybody was dressed up like the the ones in the cartoon Lion King and Simba was Jesus and... That's not, that's, I don't know that that's this. I don't think Satan would be that corny, but you never know, man. Like there was a movie in 94 called The Lion King. Jesus is a king and a lion. So, okay, that's fine. That's fine. In verse 14, we continue to see the two beasts described with so much of the same terminology used to describe the Old Testament prophets. Terminology used to describe God in Revelation and the Lamb and even Christians In some places, there will be a great deception. There is a great deception because it looks so divine. You are evil in the eyes of the world if you disagree with whatever the narrative is. You're you're not just not on the team. The more rhetoric that gets out there, you are you are dangerous. You are a threat. You need to be removed. You you need to be re-educated in your mind. The discernment we need in these days must be a miracle of God imparted to us by His Spirit. And if, if, listen, if Revelation was so hard to figure out, imagine being a believer who didn't have that kind of mind. If, if, if discerning all this was left on pure ability to discern what these symbols are and what they mean, and that was not how your mind worked, then God has given you a rotten deal. And we talk like if you're not a mathematician engineer, you really don't have the wherewithal to understand this book that's that's an insult to christ and the spirit every believer has the spirit every believer if 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 we can shut out the noise from outside and just hear the spirit in the text you can get this book i can get this book saints we need to pray for wisdom that we do not naturally possess this is a spiritual war not a fleshly one what you see in front of you in the brain you can't see they are not sufficient for these things We need to ask God for His grace to discern things that are only visible in the spiritual realm. We need to see through the facade to behind the scenes. And we live in the days where these things are happening. The reason we see such similar language among the true and the false is because this false prophet and his emissaries attempt to validate their divine authority in the same way God's true prophets and emissaries validate His. 
God's true prophets receive their inspiration and commissions from God himself. The false prophet receives his from the dragon. And he acts, the text says, in the presence of or on behalf of the beast to deceive those on earth. Demonic signs convince earth dwellers to believe in and follow the beast to such an extent that they make an image for him so they might literally worship him. As Daniel 3.15 prophesied, this image, right? The image of God is all over the world, written into mankind. The image of the beast is all over the world because mankind is fallen. You are of your father, the devil. Do you remember when Jesus said that? He could see. He could see. This command that he gives to perform idolatry in verse 14 reminds us of what we saw in the beginning of the letter. The pressure being placed on the citizens and churches of Asia Minor. They were called in their lives to give literal religious homage to the image of Caesar. As a divine being. There was a literal imperial cult. He was worshipped. As God. And we don't normally use that language anymore for leaders because that's archaic. It doesn't fit with our times. But this is how, again, many view political leaders. With literal religious spiritual devotion. As saviors and purveyors of a new world order that will finally bring peace. That's the image of the beast, beloved. No one brings peace except Jesus. Nobody. So if someone arises that can do it, and it's not Jesus, it's the beast. Make no mistake. By the end of the first century, all the cities that were addressed in those seven letters had temples dedicated to the deity of Caesar. Every single one of them. That image in Daniel 3 points us also to Daniel 8.25, where this end-time king causes deceit to succeed by his influence. That's the second beast. And by smooth words, Daniel says in 11.32, turns to godlessness those who act wickedly. But the dragon's great deception, the way he is able to do all of this, is that alleged alleged resurrection that is alluded to here again in verse 14, which I believe is Satan's consistently successful ability to wield authority in the world after having been killed, so to speak, at the cross and defeated and defanged and dethroned. That's what Colossians 2 makes very clear happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. Evil abounds and yet Christ is risen. And evil is more accessible and more natural and for some reason to us more enjoyable. And so of course it picks up traction that builds over time. That's why you have that great admonition in the end of Revelation where the Lord says, listen, people will do evil and they'll continue to do evil. Don't be swayed. It will get worse. Don't be swayed. Don't think that I'm losing because of what it looks like with your eyes. We don't look to what is seen. So why does God give signs then? Oh, beloved, let us discern what words mean. That, that, that's not condescension. Beloved, we're at war. We're at war. To the natural eye, it always looks like Satan is winning. Always. That makes people buy into the beast's lies. They, they don't know that, of course, it looks like he's winning. That's God's design for him right now. They don't know that. 
In verse 15, we hear that concept again of authorization given, being given to God's enemies to actually carry out their schemes. Just as we saw in Daniel 7, 6. Look at verse 15 here again. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Maybe uh, this manifests in many different ways, but also remember, remember what the Egyptian magicians, Janice and Jambres, could do. Beloved, they did that in league with demons. They turned water into blood also, at least it looked like it. Right? They were able to mimic certain things. But that includes, how does that happen? Demonic power and activity, since it's demons that are behind men's idols, the statues and the attitudes of the heart, right? Great, they, they have, the enemies of Christ, Satan and his minions, beloved, they have great power. Great power. Again, it's not a drop in the bucket compared to that of Christ's, but it's Christ that has sovereignly designed God the Father through the Son has designed that the world go a certain way. And in that, He has endowed them with certain authorities and powers, and they can wield them. And sometimes we're so earthly, we just can't imagine that there's stuff going on. Beloved, there's stuff going on. Even here in Moundsville, right? The, the, the enemy makes you think it's all out there. No, it's it's here. The beast is working here to fool people. Our community by majority is lost. It's not following Christ. They, they, beloved, it's, it's here. It's here. We are, we are fighting against the devil in this town. The devil. For the souls of these people. Oh, how he's just lulled us to sleep. It's all out there. It's all in the future. It's all, beloved, please just hear the word of God. John reveals here that the the second beast is so persuasive. They can do signs too, believable ones. He's so persuasive in demonstrating the image of the first beast, which in the first century, they would have identified immediately as Caesar, precisely because he so looks like true deity. Everything people want out of God, they will find in the leader they think will give them what they want. It's the dragon that stands behind this image and makes its decrees that are embraced and believed through him. Remember, Satan hates God. He wants to be equal with God. He wants to be worshipped is what that means. So he has a religion and it's called the world. Oh, it's God's world. And the world God made is good, but it's infected. It's infected. So again, we see that the second beast is a counterfeit of the church in his role, his mission, and mainly of the spirit who empowers the church. The word breath that we saw here in verse 15, that's the same word in Hebrew that's used in Ezekiel 7 for the the, the breath of God blowing on the valley of dry bones and then coming to life. This is a spiritual ability to deceive that the second beast has in verse 15. And this image is not only a reference to the idol of Caesar. Of course, he fit for that time in the manifestations of the beast. But this refers to any substitute for God in any age. So this situation is as relevant or was as relevant to those seven churches as it is to us right now and will be in the future if the church remains while Christ tarries until his return. 
This is the way it will be. Remember, we, we, Revelation is divided up into those groups of seven, these, these um, visions. And so each time you're, you're getting a, a picture of human history and God's plan of consummation, you're seeing it from three different camera angles. That's, we're in another one of those right now. In verses 16 and 17, this, uh, or the fact I should say that chapter 13 speaks to all of history, lets us make the application to us in our day also in verses 15 and 17. In verses 16 and 17, comes a demand from the beast that both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Be willing to consider this, please. This is a figurative way to describe the allegiance of those who follow the beast rather than those who are marked by and have faith in Christ. It's very possible. We at least need to consider that many of us have been fooled into thinking that a one world government or a microchip to buy things, that's what the mark of the beast is, right? Or maybe the vaccine. There's a new candidate for what the mark of the beast is every couple years. Right? The goalposts always move when that's our approach to scripture. And so now, what do we have? We have so many Christians saved and secure in Christ, worried, fretting. They may take the image of the beast by accident and be condemned. Do we see What the enemy does. How he makes Jesus and his salvation so flimsy to us. In the name of Jesus Christ. At the cross, sins were forgiven. Wrath was satisfied. Righteousness was offered up for me forever by my substitute. But I might accidentally get a microchip and lose all of it. Beloved, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That, that, that just blows all of it out of the water? Satan is crafty, beloved. This isn't a stamp. It's, it's, it's not a microchip. It's, it's in the spiritual air that you and I live in right now. The mark of the beast is the willingness and desire to go along with his idolatry. That's what marks those who don't follow Christ. So we fight the wrong battles when we should be guarding our hearts with wisdom. The mark on their forehead, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name in verses 16 and 17. Since we've had 12 chapters before this. Is the parody and opposite of the seal that are on the children of God back in chapter 7, verses 3 through 8, which is the divine name written on their foreheads, those of true believers, which, by the way, will be seen immediately in chapter 14, verse 1, God willing, next week. We go right from the mark of the beast to 14.1, and the mark of God on His people. If one mark, and by the way, it's seen again in 22.4, and in three, back in 3.12, it was seen. If one mark is literal on the skin, in the skin, then the other one is too, or you're inconsistent in your theology. So where is everybody's mark that they belong to Jesus and not the devil? Where do you have it? 
Right? If, if, if one's literal, so is the other one. So where is it? Where's your tattoo of the name of God written on your forehead? Because that's what it says it is. So where is it? One way around that, well, that's not talking about us. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. As Graham Goldsworthy, tremendous author, writes so well, no one supposes that to be a child of God, we must have a literal mark on our foreheads. He says this seal of God symbolizes the redemption which is received by faith and sealed by the Spirit of God. Similarly, the mark of the beast must symbolize unbelief, the rejection of Christ and His gospel. It is sad. Listen to him here. It is sad that many Christians are being led to think of their eternal security as depending not upon the finished work of Christ for them, but upon their prophetic astuteness in discerning the supposed relationship of the beast to the development of a new global fiscal system. Truly the gospel and the glorious truths of our justification are becoming clouded by this modern fad. And that's what it is. If a cashless society comes about in the ways that end time fads tend to propose, that may very well happen. I think it will happen. I think we're seeing it all over. The social credit score and these kinds of things. That reflects the machinations of the beast in Revelation 13. But that's not what's at issue in what the mark of the beast is. The issue is that this strictly literal line of thinking is forcing an approach on the scripture to demonstrate that prophecies are being literally fulfilled by the things like the social credit system or contemporary events for the first and the only time. That this is that and it's not anything else, right? That's It forces us into that type of interpretation. And I just don't believe the text lends itself to that. We we don't read other prophetic texts like that. This view assumes that there are discernible, once-for-all fulfillments that indicate the end is near. That's why the commentators that follow that view, which in America used to be the most common, it's actually not anymore. I'm not new and I'm not original. You can study that and trust me on that. But that's why commentators that follow that view are always predicting times for Christ's return. All of those end-time fad prophets will give you a time. And the, the more they make the mistake, the more they'll, again, move the goalposts, widen the applications... Every couple years you'll, you'll get, there'll be some big dust up that, oh, this is it. This is it. We won't know. But Jesus has us. I mean, eventually the one that predicts the return of Christ will be correct. That doesn't validate that one's view of the end times. He said he's coming. You're just agreeing with him. If the New Testament tells us anything, beloved, it's that the end does not just include the time right before the second coming of Jesus. That's not what the Bible refers to as the last days. So anything under the rubric of the last days, biblically, has to apply from the ascension to the second coming. So all of this is on the table for all of history. These signs belong to the whole period of the last days. The only consistent way to deal with it then when we come to things like this is to see the mark of the beast as characterizing godlessness and faithlessness while the mark of God characterizes the sealing of those who through faith in Christ are saved eternally. And if you're wondering, 
as I would be if I were in your shoes. What if you are a false prophet? What if you're telling us this liberal thing, which it's, it's not, but that's what it sounds like if it's new, right? It always sounds like, Tony, what if you're one of those and you are just trying to convince us not to get the, not to think that's the mark so that when it comes, we'll get it. That's fair. That's fair. Right? I'm, I'm a human being. I would just ask you, how, how are we going to know? Be honest with the text. Be honest with the text. Let it speak. Wisdom, beloved. Wisdom. We've seen even this type of language before in Scripture. We've seen it. In the Old Testament, what did God tell Israel that the Torah, the Torah, was? To serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead. It was not a mark. To remind them continually of what? Their spiritual commitment and loyalty to God in Exodus 13, 9. We see the New Testament equivalent of this back in Revelation 7, 3 in this invisible seal of the name of God. The forehead is an image that speaks to ideological commitment in the mind, while the hand is something that refers to us carrying out what is in the mind. And remember, the second beast is not identical to the first Verses 11 through 17 show us that the expression of the beast in John's time included the political, religious, and economic institutions of his culture. And all of them were connected in his time very blatantly to worshiping the emperor. So it was very easy to say, this is that. It's much more deceptive now. And we really have to learn and think and think critically and dig things out. The second beast has a primarily religious focus. And he's identified as a counterfeit church. Again, Uh, especially of the spirit who empowers the church. Even the patron deities of all those trade guilds in the Roman Empire had uh, gods that were worshipped alongside the emperor. It was just a pantheon of gods. And so, in other words, there weren't and there aren't many places of life where Christians can escape the pressure of idolatry. It's everywhere. It's even in the air. It's no different today. So, beloved, we must be on guard against false teachers. Now, we have to have elders in our churches who can identify false doctrine. The church needs it. It's God's design. The beast's agents will infiltrate the church, beloved, and we must remain vigilant. There's a spiritual war happening right now, and it comes out in the ways the state pushes idolatry against Christ. Look at verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. By the way, in some manuscripts, it's 616. So, there's a fly in your cake, right? I lost that metaphor somewhere. And so... This is one of the most debated verses in the entire book of Revelation, in the entire Bible, right? There is huge disagreement over the identification and meaning of the number 666. At one time, for a long time, the most common position taken in the Western world coming out of theology in the 19th century of the Second Great Awakening and Finney and Sperry Schaefer and, and Schofield mainly and There was a time when in the Western world, the interpretation of this text was based on what's called gematria. 
Um, it was a, a technique in the ancient world where letters of the alphabet could be substituted for numerals. We don't do that too much anymore, but each letter could stand for a number. The problem with that approach for this number, 666, in this context, is that if you try to do that, it doesn't clearly identify any particular name. Attempts have been made, of course, to do that, and so spellings are sometimes altered in people's names because if, if this letter was that, man, it would be that. So let's find a way to right, try to incorporate titles to try to make a ton of different names fit. But that hasn't produced anything conclusive. The most common identification for this number, which is based, by the way, on a Hebrew transliteration of the name, not a literal translation of the name, is the name, of course, we talked about it two weeks ago, Nero Caesar. He was horrendous. Horrendous. Burned our brothers and sisters alive on crosses to light the road for his soldiers. Set his own city on fire and blame the church for it. That's in the world, beloved. Remember how they painted the unvaccinated and churches that kept wanting to meet during COVID? You remember that? You are enemies. You don't love your neighbor. They're using the Bible against you. Satan knows scripture. Be discerning, beloved. The problem is, again, that that, the theory that it's Nero Caesar and it's only Nero Caesar... The problem is that that falls apart on the confusion of, first of all, the exact Hebrew spelling of the word Caesar. So there's that. And it doesn't even make sense, given the fact that John's readers mostly spoke Greek anyway. And Nero had many other titles besides Caesar. So which one of his titles do you use to get 666? And the more you start thinking like that, then maybe that's not what God is trying to tell us. And when John is using Gematria or using something like that, he'll tip off his readers by saying something like, the number in Hebrew or the number in Greek is, since those are the phrases he uses when he wants to do that. Like we see in 9-11 and 16-16, that's what he says when he wants to be sure to draw the reader's attention to the significance of the language in order to understand what he's saying or what he's pointing to. Here, we do not have that. We do not see that. There's no pointer at all. It's just this number of a man. There have been attempts, unsuccessful ones, to identify this number with other Roman emperors. Or even combinations of several emperors. It never stops. There's a study on this text that says over 100 names were proposed in Britain alone between 1560 and 1830. In the 20th century, the names of Kaiser, Hitler, and others were calculated, and magically, they all equaled 666. Any interpreter's creative ingenuity on the basis of Greek, Hebrew, or Latin produces literally hundreds of possible ancient and modern candidates for 666. The reason for all this speculation, I think, is twofold. For one, it's easy to turn a name into a number. Anybody can do that. But getting the right name from a number is something completely different. Secondly, the point is not to identify one person or one leader. The point in context is there in 18 to prepare the church for wisdom because this beast will always be present in the world. Because this number is put forward as what? The number of a 
man. Well, that narrows it down. Every attempt to identify the number with the literal calculation of an individual name will encounter problems precisely because of the way revelation and apocalyptic literature use names and numbers. Even as we see within the book of Revelation itself, we have to be consistent. If the point was of giving the number was to identify one certain ruler by means of a calculator, it would be very odd of John to do that. The way numbers are employed elsewhere in the book is not like that. Right? That's a normal element of, of apocalyptic literature to use numbers to signify certain things. Doesn't make it any less God's word. What God intended the text to mean is what it means, and that's holy and sovereign and perfect and infallible and inerrant. Our interpretations are not. The word is. 24 elders, seven seals, the 144,000, three and a half years, two witnesses, seven heads, two horns. All through the book, there's literally no evidence of any other number in the book being used to identify one certain person. All the numbers in Revelation have a figurative significance that symbolize a spiritual reality. That's why it calls for wisdom. It doesn't call for logic. None of those other numbers involve any kind of literal geometric calculation. Again, immediately in 14.1, saints with Christ's and God's name written on their forehead appear. That placement shows us, okay, this is a parallel contrast between the beast's name, his number, and the Lord's name. If the Lord's name refers to a pure spiritual reality, which it does, then so does the former 666 symbolizes the height of incompleteness and imperfection. We have people afraid of the boogeyman. And he's everywhere. In everybody that doesn't belong to Christ. When those people are authors and politicians and movie directors and songwriters, and the air can get pretty thick with the influence of the evil one. The beast is the direct antithesis in the text of the perfect lamb who was slain and rose again to eternal victory, not a counterfeit one. In verses 3 to 14, there's this repeated emphasis on how the first beast is a counterfeit of Christ, while the second beast is a counterfeit prophet, a counterfeit church, so to speak. By rejecting his idolatry, beloved, we avoid being identified with his name which is imperfection and unrighteousness personified. Because to be identified with a name is to be identified with that person's character. You and I belong to the Lamb. In verse 18, there's an exhortation not to be deceived by all this falsehood since Christ has given us the ability to withstand it. He's just telling you, believe what I told you. We're thinking, well, what are we going to have to figure out? What are we? No, no, no. Believe what He has told you and your mind is safe. That's why we preach the gospel every doggone Sunday and we aren't stopping. This is the main point of verses 11 through 18. The saints in every age, including John's, are being exhorted to have spiritual wisdom and understanding to see through the deceptive and imperfect nature of the beast that we saw described here in verses 11 through 17. These verses are, again, the way John writes, they're a parallel to Verses 1 through 9 and the crescendo in verse 10. You see the same thing in 11 through 17 with the crescendo in verse 18. 
the meaning is the same. But this time the metaphor is what? The metaphor here for spiritual alertness is the ability to calculate instead of, in verse 10, the ability of an ear to hear. Now again, think about this. If the exhortation to exercise intellect by calculating is taken literally, if we think he means this is a literal calculation, then why don't we say verse 10 is literal, that you have to have literal ears for hearing, because if you don't, you won't hear God's word. Do you see that in the text? It's John even writes, the visions are presented in a way that let us track it. Ears to hear. Calculate a number. Just have wisdom. Have wisdom. Receive the word of God. Have wisdom. The way numbers are employed elsewhere in the book doesn't allow that, right? So let's stick to the text. We know this hearing that he talked about in verse 10 is we always knew when Jesus said, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Did Jesus not care about people that had had their ears cut off? No. We know this hearing is a spiritual reception of God's word. Just as this calculating is spiritual discernment of the beast's ways and schemes, since he is the direct opposite of Christ. I'm almost home. All right. Notice that the number of the beast is the number of a man, not the man. That's important. Things like that. That implies the general idea of all humanity, more than one special individual. The the beast could always manifest in one person. Absolutely. Absolutely. But in general, the text speaks to the world set against God and its influences. Again, the Bible isn't written just for mathematical geniuses or linguistic geniuses. It's it's not. 666 is a number common to fallen humanity in total that worships the dragon and his image. this, This beast is the supreme representative of unregenerate and fallen humanity, separated from God, but always trying to achieve his likeness and be worshipped. So Satan is at work in TikTok and Facebook and everywhere somebody would look for validation rather than to Christ. And all this calls for wisdom in the church, not endless, endless speculation and code cracking. It's it's just he loves us. He he didn't do that to us. Right. He, He didn't make it so only one little group of people in a room somewhere finally figure it out and then they disperse it to everybody else. That that's Catholic. Okay. As believers, we must be aware of compromise. We must. Not just with a a historical cult or individual cult like Caesar's, but with all the facets of the state throughout the course of history and the way that it colludes with religious, economic, social institutions, the idolatrous culture that epitomizes fallen humanity. John isn't admonishing us to get really good at math. And Jim... Matriot calculations, beloved. And again, if you listen to to a last day's ministry, that's basically all they do is identify things and set dates. Formulas, equations, that's not how we're to read the text. It's not. And if we would hold these men accountable for all the mistakes they make, rather than just not wanting to consider that they might be wrong and maybe we are wrong, We don't want to do that, do we? We don't want to do that. So we never hold false prophets to account. Not in the sense that a false prophet in the sense that they're working for the beast. But if what they say doesn't happen, beloved, you know what they did to guys like that in the Old Testament? They killed them. 
That's how much God values the truth of His Word and the integrity of it for His people. No, we shouldn't kill them now. That's not what I mean. But we must be aware of the spirit of Antichrist. 1 John 2.18, 1 John 2.22 and 4.1-3 and 2 John 2.7 because His image is everywhere all the time. And it expresses itself in the most unexpected places, even the church. In light of the second beast's authority as a false prophet to deceive, we are called to wisdom in the last days. We need to develop discernment to recognize all the ways and schemes of the enemy that infiltrates the church all throughout history until the very end. So how can we get such discernment, Tony? And it's getting late. Beloved, we must look to wisdom personified. If the Bible calls you and I to wisdom, does it mean a general idea? There are very wise unbelievers. Wisdom personified is in Christ. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So when I hear the call to wisdom, where do I run? I run into the strong tower where I'm safe. I run into Christ and I listen and I read and I pray and I believe, beloved. Don't miss the forest for the trees in Revelation. Don't do it. Fix the eyes of our hearts and minds on Jesus. Because when we behold Him in the glory and sufficiency of the gospel and who He is and what He's accomplished for us, do you know what will happen? We don't become geniuses. Everything else that is in Him starts to look like what it is. Trust Him. He gives sight to the blind. He is what we need. 